Good morning, everyone. Thank you. We'll turn uh, back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, if you would, as I get set up up here. Deuteronomy chapter 8 will be there through a sermon here. Pray together. It's good to be with you all today. Let's pray together. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. For from you and through you and to you are all things. Today, Lord, as we gather together as one body under one Lord, we pray that you would help us to see you more clearly and more fully as the Lord of all things, the maker of the ends of the earth, head of the church, that we might know you and worship you and live for you rightly. We pray for your help. We are in weakness and in trembling and are in need of the power of your spirit. And so we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Memories, they're important, aren't they? So that's reasons why we do things like celebrate wedding anniversaries, right? Looking back at past important events and the significance that they have for us today. We remember a past day and say that was a special time. It means something and it carries on into the present moment some significance. That's uh, sometimes why we do family vacations, right? We go out and we want to uh, have a shared experience together to grow relationship that builds good bonds of uh, knowing each other, loving each other, trusting each other for the future. And then when we think back on those events, it helps us to understand what this relationship in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because that idea of memory or recalling past events is no less important in our relationship with the Lord. So we're going to see the Lord through Moses is going to encourage Israel to remember the Lord their God. For us, we're going to see that Christians are to uh, remember the Lord's gracious acts and commands so that we might live faithfully for him in all circumstances. And specifically, we're going to look at three different aspects of that in this passage. We're going to remember the Lord in the leading of providence, remember the Lord in the temptation of pride, and remembering the Lord in the danger of perishing. So let's look at that first one, remembering the leading of providence in verses one through six. In verse one, Moses starts this uh, section by saying, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers. Everything that we've already seen throughout the start of Deuteronomy here, uh, all of the history, all of the instruction, all of the exhortations has been to cause Israel to know God and to keep his commandments. This is no different. This chapter here, again, it's calling them to remember the Lord so that they can keep his commandments. And the first thing that God wants us to remember is the way he led in his providence, in his divine care. So look at verses two through six. Starting in verse two, Moses says, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. The word here, remember, is not just talking about some nostalgia. Oh, we just look back with some fond longing or even just kind of this rote memory where we're just saying, oh, I can, I can rattle those things off. 
The idea behind it is that we recall things that happened in the past to affect present feeling, thought, or action. Feeling, thought, or action. So when we look back to the work that God has done in the past, it is to guide and instruct our thinking and our actions today. What was Israel supposed to remember? He says, the whole way that the Lord is God has led you in the wilderness. The wilderness was a pretty harsh landscape for them. They spent 40 years there with God deliberately leading them in that time. This was not a place that they could sit around and just you know, set up a, a farm and grow their own food. They didn't have houses there. They were nomads. They were wandering around for 40 years. Um, I have some pictures up here. These are not my pictures, but um, this is around Mount Sinai. So this is uh, in the lower portion of the picture. You can see, um, I think it's St. Catherine's Monastery, and then the road leading up, in the, uh, up towards the top that's going up Mount Sinai. You look there, there's a few trees right around the monastery there. Everything else is rock and dirt. And then here's around Sinai. This is the desert area that's there. This is not the kind of place you're like, hey, this is where I'm going to plant my apple orchard and lease out these trees, or I'm going to start a bed and breakfast. It's not a hospitable climate to do that type of a thing, right? So they were to recall the harshness and difficulty of the wilderness and the way that God providentially acted on behalf of them during that time. And there's two things that the Lord specifically wanted them to learn in looking back at that time. Look at verses 3 and verse 5. It says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And then verse 5 he says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So two ways that God led them providentially was that God led them as a father to discipline them and to provide for them. To discipline and provide. That's the two aspects of his leading that he wants them to remember. How did the Lord discipline Israel? It says he humbled them and let them hunger. Why would the Lord do that? It sounds kind of hard. Why would the Lord do that? The term here for humble, it has a connotation of affliction, you know, painfulness, or being bowed down, weighed down with something. So the Lord was purposefully leading Israel and brought them into circumstances that weighed them down and that was difficult. Why? Well, let's say, just be clear, this was not spiteful or vindictive. It was fatherly and instructive. They should have seen that God was deliberately bringing them through trying circumstances to test and develop their character. When going into the land, Israel would need to remember this. They would need to remember the Lord and how he brought them through these difficult circumstances because those difficult circumstances were not over. He was going to continue to lead them in this way. Well, what about us? Does the Lord discipline us today? Absolutely. Many of you are going through a wilderness time right now, going through heavy, difficult, or burdensome circumstances. And it's important that we understand some aspects of this. What, how does the Lord work here? Look in verse 5. It says, As a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. This is obviously the language of, of a father. It's the language of parenting, right? As a man disciplines his son. And um, I think really helpful for us is Hebrews chapter 12. 
Uh, you can turn there if you want. I'm going to put a little bit on the screen and I'll read some of that uh, for us. Hebrews chapter 12 uh, is dealing with this same idea that the Lord disciplines his children. There, uh, it's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. It says in verses 5 and 6, let's see if I can get that to pull up. All right, it's not going to be up on the slide, but listen here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. All right, um, I should just briefly say right here that all of us, some to a lesser degree and some to a much greater degree, have all experienced the pain of a father that mistreated us or was harsh with us or even abused us. That fundamentally is a misrepresentation of what it means to be a father. And so I know for some of us to hear these words associated with God is a bit of a struggle to understand what they really mean. So this is something that we have to labor in the word of God and in faith to see what is God trying to communicate with this because that can be difficult to associate some of these things, but we need to do that work. Here we learn that the reason and the motive that God disciplines us, brings us through those difficult things, is because he loves us. He's not mistreating us in spite. He is disciplining us in love. And if he didn't do it, he would show that we are not really his children. Kids, if, um, if I went out in my front yard and I was out there doing some work on the lawn and there were some, maybe a couple of kids a, a few doors down and I heard them talking to each other and starting to use some words that were not appropriate for people to be using, they're using some foul language, should I go over there and give them a spanking and send them to their room? Any ideas? Should I do that? Adults? No. Why should I not do that? They're not my kids, right? I don't have that authority or responsibility to do that with them. But if they are, if one of them was my, my child, you should believe I'm going to go over there. I'm going to talk with them. Hey, come here. Hey, we shouldn't be talking that way. That doesn't honor the Lord. I'm going to work with them and discipline them because I love and care for them and I want them to honor God. If I didn't do that, I would be a derelict father, I would be abdicating my responsibility to care for and raise them. God does not do that with his children. He takes care of them and disciplines them. And it says there, not only does a, as a man disciplines his son, that we have to understand this idea of discipline. It's to train or to chasten or to admonish. All of this is kind of wrapped up in that term there. And God might do that with us because of a specific sin or a pattern of sin that we have in our lives. Okay, that's very clear in the scripture that we sin and he says, I need to correct you for that. But that does not mean that every trial you are experiencing, every hardship you are facing is because you've committed a specific sin. That's also very clear in the scripture because God is taking a larger approach to train and build us up in Christ. Our character is not yet fully formed in the image of Christ. And so he's going to bring us through trying circumstances to root out sin and to get rid of bad character and to grow us in Christ's likeness. Amen? That's why in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, it says, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good 
that we may share his holiness. That's his intent and purpose in this. And it looks slightly different. There's varied means that he can take whenever he disciplines us. So at times he's going to convict us through the Holy Spirit of that sin and bring us to repentance. At times he's going to lead us through circumstances that show we have no power and ability to do something on our own and humble us to bring us back to dependence on him. Other times he's going to be removing idols from our lives, things that we want and like and hold dear that are not even bad necessarily, but that have turned our attention away from him and onto that thing. So varied means that are part of this, but all of it, though painful at the time, intended for good. Amen. So the Lord disciplines us. So let me encourage you, if you find yourself in a wilderness time, know that the Lord is purposely leading you. We need to remember the Lord and the way that he has led in the past, that he purposely does it to humble us and to instruct us in his love. Know that he's using it to grow you and to refine you so that you would become more like Jesus Christ. It is difficult, and God doesn't downplay that. He doesn't say, well, it's not really that bad. We're just, uh, it's just intended for a good purpose. He says, no, it is difficult, and I know that, but it is intended for a purpose. You need to pray that you would not fight or reject God's work in this time to follow him as best as you understand right now and to have a teachable heart to be subject to his training, to submit to that. And brothers and sisters, if you know people who are going through a wilderness moment, then reach out to them. Come alongside them. Pray with them. Call them. Meet up with them. They need encouragement through this season to be strengthened and to hear the purposes and grace of God for them in this season. That's not the only thing that Israel was supposed to learn from this time of God's leading. They were also supposed to remember his provision. Okay. So the Lord deliberately brought them out to these places to humble them and to test them to see whether they would keep his commands or not, right? So it was a question, would they have faith and obey or would they respond with unbelief and disobey? Now, they were certainly given their fair share of opportunities to test this out, right? They were tested in many ways. Um, there's a little bit, looks like a little bit of uh, overlapping here, but I'll get you get the idea. So God purposefully brought them out to the Red Sea where they couldn't go anywhere and where they were trapped by an Egyptian army. Not a real fun spot. God deliberately did that. They had a choice. Would they know the Lord and respond in faith and humbly ask for his help or would they grumble and disbelieve? They grumbled and disbelieved. But what did the Lord do? He parted the Red Sea, allowed them to come through it and swallowed up the Egyptians. That was part of his purposes. That's something that Israel was to learn from them. God brought them into the wilderness deliberately where there was no food for millions of people. They chose to grumble and disbelieve. God miraculously provides manna every day, purposefully giving them that. This is something that they didn't know about, their fathers didn't know about. They had no idea going into the wilderness that this was even an option. But God purposefully did it. God brought them further into the wilderness to Rephidim where there was no water. And the people grumble and complain and say, did God bring us out here to die? And then God provides water from the rock. All of these circumstances were difficult. 
all of them were challenging. I mean, if you walked out into the desert and there was literally no water around, what, how would you respond? God was deliberately leading them completely with the end in mind to do good for them, and they needed to see that. You and I could fill out a table like this real easily. If you are a follower of Christ, you can look back at times in your own life where you saw challenges and you saw things that seemed absolutely impossible and then God provide for you in that. So in all these situations, they had a choice. Remember the Lord their God and believe and obey or to forget the Lord and to disbelieve and grumble. Israel was to learn that their daily life is not sustained by physical bread or the circumstances that made it easy to get that bread. Instead, they are to live by everything that comes forth from the mouth of God. What God was teaching Israel is that when they obeyed, then the needed provision for their life would also be given. Uh, One person, Peter Craggy, writes about this, and I think he phrases it well when he writes, Normal circumstances would involve the normal acquisition of food supplies. But if the command of God directed the people to do something or go somewhere, the command should be obeyed. Shortage of food or water, lack of strength, or any other excuse would be insufficient for the command of God contained within it, the provision of God. I don't know what it is for you right now. God may be leading you into a good work a good work that just seems completely incapable of you fulfilling, way too big for you to undertake. God may be leading you to share the gospel with a classmate or a coworker or a family friend. And you have, you just, I don't even know if I have the right answers, I don't know if I know what to say, but God is leading you into that. Or he could be leading you to give to a missionary who's doing gospel work. You just don't know where the finances would come from to do that. Or he might be leading you to reconcile a relationship where there's been years of tension and sin. And just to even think about it, you go, I don't even know how to begin to unravel all these different problems that have been a part of this. I don't know what it is for you. So think for a moment. Where has God been leading you that has seemed impossible to do? Remember the Lord your God. He provides miraculous ways that you cannot have imagined or asked for at the outset. Let the remembrance of his character and his works in the past lead you to confident and humble obedience to his commands, even when you don't see how it's going to be worked out right now. All right, so we're supposed to remember the Lord in the leading of providence. And the second part that he wants us to remember is to remember the Lord our God in the temptation of pride. Look at verses 7 through 18. In verses 7 through 10, he gives a description of the good land that the Lord is bringing them into. So in verse 7, he talks about an abundance of water. He says, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills. In verse 8 and 9, he talks about abundance of food. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. And then in verse 9 also, an abundance of material resources for building and for tools. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And then in verses 10 and 12, he says that the abundance that was there would allow them to eat 
and be full, to build good houses to live in, to multiply their hawks, uh, herds and flocks, and to increase their wealth. Sounds pretty good after coming out of the wilderness, right? Here's just a contrast. Uh, I mean, Israel has a lot of different topography, different areas of it, but this is some pictures on the left. It's a picture, uh, the kind of the traditional side of the Sermon on the Mount, and on the right, um, from Mount Carmel. You see a lot more green, some pl- actual plants growing, some crops growing, very different than the wilderness, very different. And it is at that moment in this contrast between the wilderness and the land that they would have to take care. Why? Because with the abundance would come the temptation of pride. Look at this in verse 14. It says, when all that they have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. That's the language of pride. And you forget the Lord your God. And Moses then goes on in verse 17. Well, there's some, there's some text back there. It's supposed to be verse 17, but it's black font. It's very hard to see against the black background. Um, but in verse 17, it says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Israel would be tempted to say, going from this huge contrast, well, of course we had to obey God in the wilderness. There was no resources for food out there. But here, everything's all around us. Our own effort is going to produce the food for us now. That is going to be the temptation. Well, one of my, uh, one of my kids, when they were fairly young, just learning to talk, I would do puzzles with them. And being very little, what I would do is I'd pick out the piece from the pile, I'd match up where it would need to go in the puzzle, I'd adjust it into place for them, lay it on top of the other piece that it would need to go into, and they would put their finger on it and go, and then they would go, by self! And it was very cute, you know, to say, oh, they did it by themselves. But they were so ecstatic that they were working and doing this. And in a, you know, 50-piece puzzle to do that every time and say by self, it lost its cuteness after a little bit, but... (laughs) But nevertheless, it's cute in that moment, right? We're like, oh, that's so sweet. But whenever that happens in the relationship between us and God, it's not cute. It's intense hubris. For the, I have to ask the question, how high does our heart have to be lifted up to forget the Lord our God and his mighty works that he's done? But you can, can you see something? Our circumstances can deceive us, at least in two ways. First, they can deceive us into thinking that we'll be more obedient when things go our way, when we're not hard-pressed, or when our problems are resolved. Abundance, but you know, look, look at these verses here. What these verses are teaching us is that obedience, gratitude, and holiness are not dependent on our environment. Abundance, plenty, and ease do not make it easier for us to obey, nor does poverty and hardship make it harder to obey. You will not become a godlier Christian when your problems are resolved. Abundance can lead to a sense of entitlement rather than to thanksgiving. So whether we have much or little, we ought to humbly thank God for his provision and submit to his commands. The second way that our environment can deceive us is that it makes us think that when we have achieved that abundance or wealth or health or whatever else it is, it deceives us into thinking that we gained it by our strength and that it is used for us. 
That's just not the case. Look at Deuteronomy 18, 8 verse 18. It says, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. What do they boast of? My power has gotten me this wealth. God is the one who supplied them the power to be able to work and to labor to get what they had. The thing that they boasted about is the very thing he supplied. And more than that, God supplied it to Israel to be used for his purposes as given in his law, not for their ends. Brothers and sisters, we live and meet in one of the most affluent places in the state. And we live in perhaps the most affluent country in the world. That's not an an indictment against us, as if wealth by itself was sinful. Israel was going to go into a good land and enjoy the grace of God in it. God wanted that for them. 1 Timothy 6 verse 17 says that God also richly provides for us everything to enjoy. But nevertheless, the abundance is a reality that comes with its own temptations. So, First, uh, so how do we withstand that temptation? How do we withstand the temptation to pride in this materialistic state of things? Well, first, we have to remember the Lord our God. We have to recognize that everything we have, from our health, to our education, to our jobs, to our intellect, everything that we have is given to us by the good and gracious hand of the Lord. Look at, um, I'm missing some things. Acts 17, verse 25 Paul tells the Athenians, nor is God served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We have to recognize that we have received all of it not for our own agendas and ends but for his own God's will and purposes in this world. All right. In verse 11 it says, take care. So how do we combat this? We need to take care lest we forget the Lord our God by not keeping his commandments. Wealth has a temptation to lift up our hearts in pride and to lead us to forget the Lord and his commands. That's what happened to Demas. If you remember the name Demas, in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Paul says, for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. In love with this present world, the things that it offers and provides. Because of that, he's turned away from Paul, from the Lord. Also, verse 10, it says, we shall bless the Lord our God for the good land he has given us. Expressing heartfelt thanksgiving and praise is not only the proper response to God's gifts, it is also something that is a, it continues to work in our hearts an attitude of humility which encourages obedience and combats forgetfulness. If I'm thankful for the works that God has done, I'm going to remember them and I'm far less prone to forget what he has done. So we need to remember the Lord in our temptation to pride. Whether we have poverty or plenty, whether we are abased or abound, with whatever strength and whatever wealth that God supplies, we are to employ all of it for his ends and his purposes in this world. All right, so we need to remember the Lord in the temptation to pride. And finally, we need to remember the Lord in the danger of of perishing. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, if you forget the Lord your God and you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish 
because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. For Israel, this warned them of kind of the boundaries and the consequences of the covenant. We'll look at this more in, uh, especially in Deuteronomy uh, 27 and 28, that the Lord would graciously and patiently correct Israel, but if they persisted in their forgetfulness and idolatry, that eventually the Lord would cause them to perish from the land just as the people before them perished. God is often through Deuteronomy saying, don't do these things because the people in the land ahead of you are doing those things and that's why I am destroying them. That's why I'm casting them out from the land. If Israel walked into that same sin and forgetfulness and idolatry, the same thing would happen to them. There's a warning for us here as well because there are many people throughout the world today who gather with a local body of Christians on a Sunday morning, who hear the Bible taught, who in many ways affirm the cultural or moral truths of Christianity, and who call themselves Christians, but they're not. They profess the name of Jesus. They say, yes, I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. But in their lives, they forget the Lord and walk without regard for Christ's commands. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus is saying that there will be people on the day of judgment who claim his name and even in this life have acted with religious or spiritual works, yet they have not repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. They will not be brought into a new heaven and a new earth. They will be perish in hell. And I don't say that because it's fun to say. I say that because I believe it to be true from the scripture. Their lives of lawlessness, right? They had spiritual works, big showy things that they did, but when it came to his commands, they disobeyed. They acted as if God hadn't given them a law to follow. That disobedience was an evidence that, um, that they had not believed in Christ. Now, hear me on this. I'm not saying that they hadn't done enough good works to be saved. I'm saying that their disobedience was evidence that the grace of God was not at work in their life. And I know this because I was like those types of people. And so whenever I was 15, I, uh, one of my older brothers came to faith in Christ. And he began to talk and live very differently. He would say things like, you know what, hey Stephen, this thing that I'm doing, I, it's sin. And I don't want to sin anymore. It grieves God. And I would sit there and I'd look at him and I would kind of think to myself and I'd go, what on earth are you talking about? Like this, the idea of wanting to put away sin or even to know that sin was a real commodity in life was foreign to me, right? So to talk about wanting to turn away from sin, I, I, it was foreign, to talk about wanting to do God's will with a real desire from the heart. I, I couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand it. Now, I could do a lot of outward religious things. 
I attended a church. I said I was a Christian. I, I volunteered at different places. But I didn't have a desire to know God or to keep his commands at all. It wasn't until a year later the Lord humbled me from self-righteousness and pride and caused me to see and believe in Jesus Christ. Friends, let me say, if you can go about in your life in patterns of sin without conviction from the Lord, without discipline, right? This is actually, this is what, again, Hebrews chapter 12 says, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you can go about in your life going on sinning without conviction of the Lord, without the discipline of God, the scripture teaches you don't know the Lord because God does not do that to his children. He cares too much. Look, I believe that the scripture teaches when God does a work of salvation in someone, he brings them from death to life. He seals them with the Holy Spirit. He gives them the promise of eternal life in Christ and that that work is not something that is undone. But I also believe that the scripture talks about people who make shipwreck of their faith, people who turn away from Christ after having begun. And I think that there's two perspectives that the scripture is giving us. The first is that, that of a divine perspective. God is teaching us the reality, the true reality of faith and what happens in a person when they're saved. The second is a human perspective, right? The only perspective that we can really have where we only see the outward profession of faith and actions of a person on this earth without truly knowing what's happened in their hearts. So we can have people around us or be people who may look like they follow Jesus Christ and yet who are not saved. Now, holding on to the gospel and persevering in the faith, that's not something we accomplish by ourselves. I'm not saying you need to go pursue more good works to, to make you feel like you're, you're saved. That's not at all it. De- Deuteronomy 8.18, God is the one who supplies, who gives the power to do this, right? Philippians 2, verse 13, God is at work to, in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We are saved not by our good works, but because of Jesus Christ and the work he accomplished in dying in the place of sinners to satisfy the justice of God and rising from the dead. All we do is simply repent of sin and put our faith in him. Israel received the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness to provide for their physical need. What we read about in John 6 is that Jesus is the true bread from heaven who's the provision for the forgiveness of sin for us and for eternal life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's in response to the question that they asked. What does God want us to do? What is the work that God wants us to do? And Jesus says, believe. That's what he wants. Believe in me. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So friends, let me encourage you, if you are unsure about these things, if a desire to know God, to keep his commands, if the discipline of God, if conviction 
from the Holy Spirit sounds foreign to you. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent and believe the gospel. Talk with your parents about that. Talk with one of the elders. We'd love to talk and pray with you through that. But the message here is do not forget the Lord. Memories. Memories are important to recall past events and their significance for today. It's important in our families, but even more so with our relationship with the Lord. We need to remember the Lord our God. We need to remember him in his leading of providence. We need to remember him during times of the temptation to pride. And we need to remember him in the danger of perishing. Let's pray together. Father, oh Father, we come to you and ask that you would humble us and make us to be a people who see your hand in our lives, that we might be faithful in the way that we follow you. Please lead us today. In Jesus' name, amen.